Puerto Rican obituary. They were, they were always on time. They were never late. They never spoke back when they were insulted. They worked. They never took days off that were not on the calendar. They never went on strike without permission. They worked 10 days a week and were only paid for five. They worked, they worked, they worked and they died. They died broke, they died owing, they died never knowing what the front entrance of the first national city bank looks like. Juan, Miguel, Milagros, Olga, Manuel, all died yesterday, today, and will die again tomorrow, passing their bill collectors on to the next of kin. All die waiting for the Garden of Eden to open up again under a new management. All die dreaming about America, waking them up in the middle of the night, screaming, Mia, Mia, your name is on the winning lottery ticket for $100,000. All die hating the grocery stores that sold them make-believe steak and bulletproof rice and beans. All die waiting, dreaming, and hating. Dead Puerto Ricans who never knew they were Puerto Ricans, who never took a coffee break from the Ten Commandments to kill, kill, kill the landlords of their cracked skulls and communicate with their Latino souls. Juan, Miguel, Milagros, Olga, Manuel from the nervous breakdown streets where the mice live like millionaires and the people do not live at all are dead and were never alive. Juan died waiting for his number to hit. Miguel died waiting for the welfare check to come and go and come again. Milagros died waiting for her ten children to grow up and work so she could quit working. Olga died waiting for a five dollar raise. Manuel died waiting for his supervisor to drop dead so he could get a promotion. It's a long ride from Spanish Harlem to Long Island Cemetery where they were buried. First the train and then the bus and the cold cuts for lunch and the flowers that will be stolen when visiting hours are over. is very expensive, it's very expensive, but they understand, their parents understood, is a long non-profit ride from Spanish Harlem to Long Island Cemetery. episode of the Groundings podcast. I'm the host as always, Devin Springer, and joining me today is Joanna Fernandez, a academic writer and community organizer, as well as professor, I believe, who has um, covered a number of crucial topics that we've actually covered on this podcast, such as Mumia Abu-Jamal, Political Prisoners, and the Young Lords, which is the subject of today's episode. Before I continue, uh, to butcher an introduction, I'm actually going to let her introduce herself. Hi there. Uh, thank you so very much for having me on your show. I'm very happy that we can have this conversation today in part because the COVID-19 disaster apocalypse has uh, in many ways derailed my initial project of raising the profile of this book that I spent so much of my life crafting, if you will, so uh, this is, I think, the first interview I'm offering in this COVID moment. So my gratitudes to you. Who am I? I am Johanna Fernandez. I'm 
a professor of history at Baruch College uh, of the City University of New York. I teach 20th century US history and the history of social movements. I'm also part of the movement to free Mumia Abu Jamal, and I'm one of the founders of uh, the campaign to bring Mumia home. I'm also an abolitionist. I should say that I'm an anti-capitalist, dare I say a revolutionary socialist. And it seems that the, the apocalypse that uh, has been ushered in by COVID-19 is pretty much making an argument for the um, desperate need to, to reorganize society around human need. That's what I got for you. I I love it, and I, I like that you said abolitionist on this podcast. We're all we're all my guests tend to be abolitionists, so it's always in great company. And I also like what you said about the the COVID nineteen really illuminating the need to restructure society because I think the young lords who we're going to talk about today, they were very apt to the need to restructure society almost in a prophetic way with some of the initiatives they undertook. And although I don't want COVID-19 to loom super heavy on this episode, I do think it just makes this conversation all the more relevant. Even when you talk about abolition, we now know that the call to decarcerate jails and prisons is stronger than ever right now. And we're actually seeing that happen in some cities. So, Absolutely. We had the first death uh, as a result of COVID-19 just this past week at Sing Sing, the Sing Sing prison in New York. Prisons are a death trap right now. And in Rikers Island, for example, there are over a thousand people who are there because they broke rules, uh, not because they committed crimes. And you probably know that there's a call to release all aging prisoners prisoners over the age of 50 or prisoners who are immunocompromised. Yeah. So this is, this is really the moment to decarcerate. And I'm, I'm happy to be part of, of the group of people of conscience who are pushing for that. Now, not to pivot the subject too much, but I do want to get into the young Lords and have your, your book right here with me. It's an incredible document on a group that is to me underdocumented and not discussed enough. It's called the young Lords, a radical history you said that you've spent a lot of your life sort of doing this work and this research related to the Young Lords. And even as I look through some of the interviews you've conducted for the book, they date 15 to 20 years back. So it's curious to me because we don't get a lot of books nowadays that have that long of a sort of lifespan on their research. So I'm curious how you got involved with the Young Lords and and wanting to research them and and what's sort of the personal connection there, if at all. So... I learned about the Young Lords uh, at Brown University my junior or senior year. A Latino studies professor was hired for the first time at the college in the American Studies program, and that's where I learned about the Young Lords. Meanwhile, I grew up in the Bronx during the crack epidemic, and I had never heard about the Young Lords. So I was just shocked that I could have lived in the Bronx, however many years I lived, 18 years before landing in college, without having ever heard of a very dynamic group of young revolutionary people who occupied a hospital in my borough, not far from where I grew up, 
a hospital that we were intimately familiar with. I know that and grew up with stories of the crisis my father experienced at Lincoln Hospital, which the young lords occupied. Uh, he almost died in that hospital. I was just both inspired and outraged that uh, this history had been kept from me growing up. That's how I felt. I felt that this this can be only a conscious development. I mean, how how could how could this not be part of the curriculum in New York City schools? Uh, so okay, so fast forward to my senior year. I'm trying to decide whether to go to graduate school or law school. I apply to both, but ultimately decide not to go to law school. And I land at Columbia University. And initially, and I've told this story a number of times, initially I wanted to write about the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement in Detroit, the black Marxists who organized a revolutionary organization at the point of production in the workplace. Mm -hmm. But I didn't get funding at Columbia. And that project was going to be so much more difficult without the funding to travel to Detroit. And I decided to write about the Yellow Lords. And I don't regret it. My advisors at the time knew very little about the Young Lords, and they probably raised an eyebrow. But Manning Marable, for whom I worked at uh, the Institute for Research in African American Studies, which was the entity that actually paid for my tuition because I worked for Manning Marable as his research assistant. He knew about the Young Lords and he was very supportive and ecstatic that I was going to explore this subject. So that's that's really what uh, what brings me to this topic. I'm from New York. I'm a New Yorker. And uh, I probably became a revolutionary in college when I was engaged in a massive struggle at Brown for greater financial aid, but also for need-blind admission. So Brown was one of the last Ivy Leagues to abandon need-aware admission, which is that it actually considered your ability to pay in the admissions process, which meant that a disproportionate number of people of color were excluded from the student body. <clears throat> there was a big struggle. I was one of the first, uh, my class was one of the first classes that was admitted just on uh, on a lark, need blind. And then the college went back to need aware and this got out on campus and we occupied University Hall uh, my junior year. It was a massive student uprising occupation that led to 300 and some odd arrests. And I was one of the leading members of that, of that struggle, but that was really a microcosm of how society works for me. And that struggle definitely influenced my, my politics thereafter. Long story, absolutely long, but that's, that's what uh, inspired my research on the young Lords, which then meant that I was writing a book about revolutionaries as a, rev a young revolutionary myself, wanting to understand the process of radicalization, the root causes of rebellion, the politics and theories informing revolutionary struggle. What does it look like to organize in the community as a revolutionary? 
I mean, I think that a combination, that combination of forces made for a better book. And I think that's important to note because we are, we're engaged subjects to what we write. And throughout reading this book, I can, I can sort of feel your energy through the book in a way that I think that other writings on the Young Lords have almost been very detached, but you feel very personally invested in it. And that comes across when you read sort of your writing and not necessarily in a uh, academically faulty way, but in, in the opposite, in a way that I think enriches the writing a lot. Right. So I, I feel that I tried to, to look at the young lords as historical subjects, objectively speaking, but I was writing a history with heart in part because I realized in the writing of this history that you write a better history if you are closer to the subject, at least emotionally, right? If not in terms of proximity, because I was not, you know, the young lords uh, came a lot before me, but there's a reason why black history, for example, has been written by black people, right? I think that there's a kind of investment that has a different quality. Not, that's not to say that others can't write this history. I think that others can and can do a phenomenal job. But when you are from a place emotionally invested, belong to a particular class, and in this case, you're invested in the revolutionary project, then that raises the stakes. So I knew that I needed to write a history that was good enough for the academy, that was very well researched. But I also wanted to write a history that wasn't detached, that would speak to a new generation of activists and budding revolutionaries. And I also wanted to write a history that ordinary people could read. So it needed to be accessible. And, you know, I don't think the book is an easy read, but it's not mired uh, in the obfuscating language of the academy. Yeah. And, and I want to make sure the listeners understand that it's really difficult to do all of those things accurately and do do justice to your to your book, um, because a lot of authors will sort of have a checklist. One check gets gets completed, meaning the other one has to not be. So, for example, for some less academic language may mean less rigorous research. Right. Or less rigorous ideas. And so the combination of those things is difficult. But when done properly, it, it makes for a fantastic book. So for our listeners who might not be familiar with who the Young Lords were at all, which I assume is going to be a lot of listeners for this podcast, um, but that's going to change after this episode. Could you give a sort of introduction of who the Young Lords were? So the Young Lords, in short, were the Puerto Rican counterpart to the Black Panther Party. The organization emerged in Chicago, and its leader was Jose Chacha Jimenez, who was formerly a gang member of a gang by the same name, the Young Lords. So the Young Lords, before it became a political organization in the late 1960s, was a gang of young Puerto Rican and Mexican youth. It started in 1959. Its members in 1959 were very, very young, 10, 11. That is a very long story that perhaps <clears throat> we don't have time to get into, but joining gangs for Black and Latino kids in 
cities like Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, was a matter of survival. As you probably know, there was a mass migration of people of color into the cities in the post-World War II period. And in a city like Chicago, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, and Black Americans began to settle in large numbers in a city where white gangs were a way of life. And in a city rife with white supremacy and racism, survival depended on creating organizations that were training young people to defend themselves, literally, on the block. So that was the purpose of, um, of the gang. So this is a very important thing to consider, that because people of color were creating their own gangs for the purpose of defending themselves against white reaction to their presence in the city and to defend themselves against racism, they took on a political, a potentially political form. It was a place where young people of color who were treated like children of a lesser God gained a sense of their identity and power and integrity as human beings, right? In the struggle to defend themselves against um, white terror, essentially. And in the context of the civil rights and black power movements and the anti-war movements of the 1960s, the potential for these organizations to become explicitly political was high. And that's precisely what happened. The story of radicalization of this gang and of Chacha Jimenez, who was the leader, is epic. And I encourage people to read that chapter, which is my first chapter, the first chapter of the book. It's a riveting story, inspiring, gives you a sense of the possibility of human transformation because Chacha Jimenez was living in a hellhole of recidivism in prison, but he was radicalized the year that Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968. He was in prison and started reading a series of books, including Malcolm X's book. He read Seven Story Mountain by Thomas Merton. And Where Do We Go From Here by Martin Luther King. Mm. And interestingly enough, these books were given to him by the librarian who was a member of the Nation of Islam in prison. So it was the Nation of Islam and the prisoners who were members of the Nation of Islam, much like Malcolm X, who encouraged reading in the prisons. And once he left prison, he decided to work to transform the organization into a political group, the gang that is. And it took a minute and the process is complicated, but uh, he eventually met Fred Hampton, who was the chairman of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party. And with Fred Hampton, but others in the Black Panther Party, but members of other organizations like LADO, a Latino organization which was radical in Chicago. In collaboration with all these people, the organization was transformed into a political revolutionary group. And uh, the Rainbow Coalition emerges for the first time, which was a coalition among Puerto Ricans in the Black Panther Party and Mexicans, Black Americans in the Black Panther Party, but also poor whites from Appalachia who 
were part of the Young Patriots. So this was a coalition across racial lines on the basis of shared class interests. So the organization grows in New York and blossoms in New York in part because a group of working class young people, Puerto Rican, but also black Americans start meeting in East Harlem, which is the Puerto Rican neighborhood in New York city. And they're looking for an activist agenda and they have a reading group that meets on a regular basis. And one day they read an interview with Chacha Jimenez, the leader of the young Lords in the newspaper of the black Panther party. And they are riveted by the story of a gang member who um, is now a revolutionary who's transformed uh, a gang into a revolutionary organization. And he's Puerto Rican and he's an anti-capitalist socialist. And he stands for the, for the independence of Puerto Rico. And they decide to get in a car, literally drive to Chicago and ask for permission to launch a chapter of the Young Lords in New York. Of course, they meet Chacha Jimenez first, and um, there's a long conversation over the course of a weekend about what the organization is truly about and what it's doing in the community. And Chacha Jimenez, who's a phenomenal human being and just a very humble leader, gives them permission to initiate a, a project of the Young Lords in New York. And that becomes, I would say, one of the most successful uh, chapters of the organization. And the rest of the book is about the Young Lords in New York and the evolution uh, and activism of that chapter of the organization. Spanish Harlem to Long Island Cemetery, Juan, Miguel, Milagros, Olga, Manuel, all died yesterday, today, and will die again tomorrow. Dreams, clean cut, little white neighborhood, Puerto Rican the scene, $30,000 home, the first pigs on the block, proud to belong to a community of gringos who want them lynched. Proud to be a long distance away from the sacred phrase, que pasa? These dreams, these empty dreams from the make-believe bedrooms their parents left them are the after effects of television programs about the ideal white American family with black maids and Latino janitors who are well trained to make everyone and their bill collectors laugh at them and the people they represent. Huang died dreaming about a new car. Miguel died dreaming about new anti-poverty programs. Milagros died dreaming about a trip to Puerto Rico. Olga died dreaming about Rio Jewelry. Manuel died dreaming about the Irish sweepstakes. They all died like a hero sandwich dies in the garment district at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. Social security numbers to ashes, union dues to dust. 
They knew they were born to weep and keep the morticians employed as long as they pledge allegiance to the flag that wants them destroyed. They saw their names listed in the telephone directory of destruction. They were trained to turn the other cheats by newspapers that misspelled, mispronounced, and misunderstood their names and celebrated when death came and stole their final laundry tickets. They were born dead and they died dead. It's time to visit Sister Lopez again, the number one healer and fortune card dealer in Spanish Harlem. She can communicate with your late relatives for a reasonable fee. Good news is guaranteed. So I'm curious because when people think of the Young Lords, it's, it is synonymous with New York. New York's history of activism, especially New York City specifically, or like you just mentioned, their beginnings in Chicago as a gang. But I'm curious if you know what their presence was like outside of Chicago and New York. If if they had a presence or if they were known at the time nationally or internationally, or if they had other chapters. So the organization emerges in Chicago. It then surfaces in New York and it spreads to Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the other strong chapter of the organization. There are chapters in Newark, I think in Bridgeport, in Connecticut, in Hartford. So it spreads along the Northeastern corridor. Uh, and that's the history that is yet to be written. Another aspect, too, that is important just for the context is that the national and really international discourse around Puerto Rico and Puerto Rican independence might have been in a sort of different or even further left place at this time. You know, there were active struggles waged. There was um, political prisoners, Puerto Rican political prisoners held in the U.S., and I think that for the left, this was a more prominent, the national question of Puerto Rico was a much more prominent discussion at that time. Am I correct in saying that or no? Well, part of what I argue in the book is that the rise of the young lords who whose parents were from the island, the rise of the young lords and their political stance, uh, which calls for the independence of Puerto Rico, is critical to raising the profile of the political standing of Puerto Rico vis-a-vis -vis the United States as the oldest colony in the world, but also a colony of the United States. I think that uh, there were other organizations. The MP MPI, Movimiento Pro Independencia, was the other big organization of anti-colonial Puerto Rican activists. But it was much smaller and it spoke to a different generation of people. It spoke to older audiences. But when the young lords hit the streets, if you will, they put the question of Puerto Rican independence front and center in the movement, but also in the politics of New York. So they integrated an anti-colonialist discourse within the new left. Okay. surrounding the specific political status of Puerto Rico. Anti-colonial struggles were in the air, right? Uh, there was the Vietnam War, right? That was a, a war waged by guerrillas for the independence of Vietnam and to excommunicate, if you will, 
first French colonists and then American imperialists. But it seemed that the project, that the United States had a quiet colonial project on the island and the young lords were intent on on making that colonial project of the United States on the island front and center. I definitely think that we need to credit the young lords for for moving the new left to the left on that question. I want to know a little bit about the young lords praxis, uh, what they did and the theory that inspired it. I know that you mentioned that they're sort of framed with the Black Panthers in mind as sort of an organizational model, maybe, and that they arise in this era of internationalist organizing, as well as this new left movement taking place. So what did their actual on the ground organizing look like? I know one of the most talked about areas is their work in public health, for example. So the Young Lords were poor and working class young people between the ages of 14 and 21. They grew up in urban centers in the United States in the post-World War period. Their parents migrated en masse from Puerto Rico to cities like New York, Chicago, Philadelphia in the aftermath of the launching of Operation Bootstrap on the island. And Operation Bootstrap was the United States' first industrial project on the island, a project to industrialize the island. And what ended up happening was that more peasants were displaced than were absorbed within the working class and emerging working class in Puerto Rico. And so, interestingly enough, Operation Bootstrap had an escape valve for that class of unemployed people that it produced, and that was migration. It literally organized the migration of surplus labor from the island to cities like New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, and others along the Northeastern Corridor. And so the young lords are the children of that migration, and they grow up in a city that is more divided by race and class than ever before in the history of the cities. So by the city, I'm talking about all Northern cities in the United States. There is for the first time, the rise of deindustrialization. We tend to think of deindustrialization as a problem of the white working class. But in fact, as people of color were settling in cities in large numbers for the first time after World War II, uh, factories started moving to the suburbs and to the south in stages and then abroad. And so the new migrants to the cities, Black Americans, Puerto Ricans, and Mexicans, uh, and Mexican Americans, but also Native Americans and poor whites from Appalachia who were migrating to Chicago, settled in a city that was experiencing joblessness, a new kind of permanent joblessness that hadn't ever been seen before. It was also experiencing white flight. So this was a moment that brought, for all kinds of different reasons that we don't have time to go into, the rise of the suburbs. And people of color were excluded from the suburbs because of racism. And so the tax base of the city was eroding. So the infrastructure of the city 
was poorer. In fact, the population of the city, even though there's a mass migration of people of color into the city, shrinks because working class white people and middle class white people are leaving the city in droves. So in this situation, what we see is the dilapidation of housing, hospitals that are also ailing, a population that for the first time is becoming poorer because of these structural features of this new city that are producing greater poverty. And so what the Young Lords do, and also the Black Panthers, is that they focus their energy not on the working class, as self-proclaimed socialists and Marxists had done previously, and they were self-proclaimed socialists and Marxists, both the Black Panthers and the Young Lords, but they decide to organize the sectors of society that are experiencing the most distress and poverty. So the Young Lords literally anchor themselves in East Harlem and they asked the community as they were launching their organization in New York, what's the biggest problem? What should we focus our energies on? Or what do you want to see improvement in? And according to the Young Lords, in their informal poll, the community says the garbage. The garbage is the problem. We're drowning in garbage in East Harlem. The sanitation department doesn't pick up the garbage. They're treating us like garbage by not picking up the garbage. And when they do come, the sanitation department, because of its racism, it leaves half the garbage strewn in the streets. And so that was the first campaign of the Young Lords. They literally picked up the garbage in the neighborhood. They tried to get the community involved. They allegedly went to the sanitation department to ask for bags and brooms and the sanitation department dismissed them with racial epithets. They found garbage bags and they piled up the garbage, which was industrial in size. I I don't think that Americans or even New Yorkers can understand the level of refuse that the city was producing um, in this period. Uh, In many ways, the technology of garbage production had not caught up with the kinds of massive amounts of garbage that a new consumer society was creating, right? Remember that the United States became an increasingly consumer society beginning in the 1950s. So it was producing more garbage than the sanitation department could get rid of. And all that garbage was piling up in um, neighborhoods, it was worse in neighborhoods of color, but everywhere there was garbage in New York. Like it was epic. And it was a complaint by people of all classes and races. So the, the garbage men didn't come to pick up the garbage that the young lords had, you know, organized for them on the sidewalk. And then they decided to put the garbage in the middle of the street to block traffic. And they blocked traffic for blocks and the media started covering these garbage dumping protests, they call them. And eventually the community got into these protests and started burning the garbage. And this happened for a series of weeks straight. This is something that the young lords did like evangelicals. They were evangelical about this protest. It happened daily, not once a week or whenever we, you know, get together. It was They were very disciplined about carrying out their activities daily and also putting out press releases 
with demands, which in fact included a raise for the sanitation workers, a predominantly Italian union that was racist, which I think is fascinating. So they decried the racism, but they said that garbage men also should be treated with dignity. But we need better, more efficient and regular pickup. And they did this precisely at the moment when there was a mayoral election and all of the muckraking and protest involved uh, that they produced made it to the debate, the mayoral debate. And so both candidates were trying to outdo themselves uh, in terms of putting forth a, a solution to the garbage. And they won. And the, the, the mayor uh, sent his representatives to meet with representatives in the community, included the young lords, but the young lord said, we don't want to meet with you because you are part of the system and you're part of the problem, but fix the problem, please, to the extent that is possible under a system that's not interested in solving problems, capitalism. Then they turned to the problem of lead poisoning. They went door to door testing children for uh, lead poisoning. And as you know, lead poisoning is a neurotoxin that produces permanent brain damage. There was a case in East Harlem of an African-American kid by the name of Gregory Franklin that got attention. And, you know, in many ways, the young lords are young, right? They're, they're not that old. They're young. They're, they're 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. So they're more connected to this child who has died, right? Their experience is, is proximate to this kid um, and his sister, I think he died, but his sister was also uh, tested positive for lead poisoning. So this rankles them to the core and they become, again, muckrakers who are exposing the immorality of a city that would um, not fix the buildings and strip the lead paint of walls that are killing children left and right. And so they go door to door testing children and they do this in collaboration with medical technicians and doctors at Metropolitan Hospital in the neighborhood. And they discover that 30% of the children they tested are lead positive. And of course, this was a moment when there was a, a conversation about lead belts throughout the city, right? In the deteriorating housing in Brooklyn and East Harlem and uh, Harlem and the Bronx, uh, the Mott Haven area. And so they be, they expose the depravity, if you will, of capitalism through the issue of lead poisoning. They also occupy Lincoln Hospital to dramatize the horrific conditions of health in that um, hospital. That's a Bronx hospital. And they are responsible for drafting the first patient bill of rights, which is pretty amazing because the a patient bill of rights is now something that everyone takes for granted. You kind of go into a hospital and there's this thing there that's like permanently affixed to the wall that says that you have these rights. Well, the Young Lords is the first known organization to have drafted a patient bill of rights in collaboration with hospital workers and doctors. The major issue that they fought against was discrimination, in part because more 
black people and Puerto Ricans were going to public hospitals than ever before, in part because of um, the war on poverty and the fact that Medicaid was won in the 1960s, which gave health insurance essentially to the poorest people uh, in society. So now people in the city were going to the emergency room and to the hospital, and they were coming in contact with a medical profession that was unreconstructed, where racism was the order of the day. And so they fought for dignified care. But they also argued that hospitals needed to be run by people in the community and by workers, medical workers, which is fascinating because this is a demand that was put forth recently, not around hospitals, by UPS workers in Massachusetts. So UPS workers just went out on strike for like a day. They had a protest because they believe that COVID-19 is all over the workplace and they demand sanitation in the workplace to protect them from COVID-19. And part of what they said, I just reported on this because I'm now the host of WBAI's morning show. They said, and we want a committee of shop stewards and workers to make sure that the sanitation in the depot is up to snuff because we don't trust UPS one bit. And I'm quoting. It was just wonderful to see that because this is precisely what the Young Lords and also the Black Panthers argued, that all organizations, all institutions needed to be run by workers and the people most that were interested in having these organizations, most interested in having these organizations meet the needs of workers or the people. That was one of the fascinating things I discovered in writing this book which is that most of the campaigns of the Young Lords were organized around or address issues of health. And so that's a question that I address. Like I, I was obsessed. I was obsessed with this question. Why health? Like these were young people. Why, no one, when you're young, you, you're not thinking in your mortality. So why, why does health become so pivotal in the um, activism and organizing of the Young Lords. I, I, I don't think I have time to go into this and I've been speaking nonstop, but uh, I answer the question in the book. I think health and the realm of healthcare, access to healthcare, affordability, that one topic illuminates and intersects with so many other topics, right? There's a, a racial analysis to health. There's a gender analysis and sexuality analysis to health, but also incarceration, immigration, uh, police violence, class, right? So to me, it's one of the smartest things about the group is that that is what they really chose to focus on. I know that when I first learned about them a few years ago, it was I was introduced to them through the story of, of them sort of stealing or reclaiming. An a tuberculosis truck, a TB truck. Right, because they realized that they were that the people in their communities were essentially not being tested at the same rate as others and were not giving efficient treatment for a TB in general. So they took this TB truck and took it to their communities, right? And that kind of action is almost unheard of nowadays in the US at least. Today would I don't think people really even conceptualize in the imaginary of, of these kind of actions currently. 
but now is the time to learn about them and, and learn about these kind of actions. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So part of what I think it's important for your listening audience to know is that the Young Lords emerged in 1969 at the height of radicalization in the 60s. So there was a poll in 1969 of young people um, in the United States, which um, determined that uh, 2 million young people believed in the importance of building a revolutionary party. Huge. And of course, this is at the end of the movements or after a decade or more of struggle when activists have come up against a system that was only willing to deliver so much. And in fact, a situation in which people are being beaten by the cops for protesting, white students in the anti-war movement who were middle class who believed that the cops were their friends came against an enormous amount of violent repression on the part of the state and the police. And that has a radicalizing effect on the generation, um, but also the, the, the Vietnam war. And so the young Lords come to the table really having absorbed the best politics and the most revolutionary politics of the period which is why they're anti-capitalist from the go, right? Socialist, who in many ways attempt through their politics and organizing to create or give people a sense of what socialism might look like, what is known as a prefigurative politics, that what they do in the community the occupation of a hospital and an attempt to run it in the interests of the people in their protest, they are trying to give people a taste of what socialism might look like. And in fact, their newspaper, because they had a newspaper in the run up to the occupation of Lincoln hospital alluded to the fact that something was going to happen at Lincoln, but the byline of the, of the article was socialism at Lincoln, right? What does it look like for, for people to be treated with dignity, the best care? One of their demands was that um, the hospital offer childcare for patients, parents who were coming in, that there be food available because the wait in the hospital is, you know, six, seven hours, that care be given in a language that the patient understands that the patient be told exactly what is wrong with them and that they be consulted in the process of medicating and that they be consulted before they're medicated. Right. But this was new. We take this for granted, but that wasn't happening in, in, uh, in public hospitals. One of the just beautiful things that one of the members of the young Lords says about why health is that, when people are sick, they're the most vulnerable and the most human. I think that says it all. That when you are sick, you are put in touch with your mortality and therefore with your humanity. And that offers a moment or platform and a possibility for reimagining your place in the world. But reimagining what society might look like, a more humane society. 
you know, you almost can't divorce the young lords from the the context of the years leading up to all these radical actions. I mean, all around the world, you had decolonial movements that were winning, like across the continent of Africa, you had colonial regimes falling left and right. Mm-hmm. And at that time, you know, they maybe they couldn't see the trajectory of these neo-colonial stooges being put in place. And across the Caribbean, you had radical action happening in Jamaica with the Rodney riots in Trinidad, uh, in Grenada, and that the the imagination of the young lords, especially like you mentioned, as youth, you know, the imagination was probably in a very incredible place. The political imagination, I should specify, which. You know, that sort of leads me to another question was, I mean, you said that they identified as socialist and Marxist and, and, you know, these different sort of ascriptions, but what were their political influences? Like, what were they reading? Who are they listening to? Of course, aside from just looking, you know, looking at the world around them, I'm sure there was study involved as well, because when you read their 13 point program, for example, you think, wow, this is all of these things could be our demands today, right? So I'm just curious about what they were, what their sort of political and ideological influences and motivations were. I just want to call your attention right now. You probably don't hear this, but in the background, there's an enormous amount of noise. People are clapping and making noise. And in New York City, and I think across the country at seven o'clock, people open their windows and start clapping for healthcare workers. There's all of this noise that I can hear right now and it's just inspiring. It's just a very beautiful human thing. You know, doctors and nurses and medical technicians are at war right now and they probably feel alone, but there are so many people who, who are rooting for them. And the problem is that we don't have control over the means of production. so that we might produce more ventilators uh, and less cars in this period. GE workers recently staged a protest demanding that GE, which makes ventilators, reorganize some of its factories and expand um, the capacity of factories to, uh, to produce ventilators and other medical equipment for this period. So I think what you said previously is very important, which is that this was a moment when we were winning, guerrillas were fighting wars of independence and they were bringing empire to its knees, like the French empire. The Tet Offensive in Vietnam in 1968 showed that perhaps a raggedy ass little third rate nation, which is what President Johnson called Vietnam, might defeat the Americans because the guerrillas surprised the Americans in the cities, something they had not done before. And even though they lost militarily, the struggles of the guerrillas against the American soldiers were caught on camera. And and I, I don't know if folks even know, a lot of people don't know that in Saigon, it was a woman who led the attack on the American embassy, a woman guerrilla. And that was at the moment that there was a militant women's movement beginning to sink roots here in the United States. And that was not even part of the freedom dreams of the women's movement, that women could lead a campaign in a revolutionary battle. So it raised questions about what was going on in in Vietnam and maybe what the Vietnamese are fighting for 
is worth reconsidering, given that they've expanded freedom in ways unimaginable, at least for women in the United States. So this was a moment of incredible confidence and a sense that that revolution was possible and it was happening across the country. So that is very, very important. So what were their politics? You mentioned they must have read. Oh, absolutely. So there was what they called PE, which is political education, which was mandated. Uh, They were a revolutionary organization. There was an enormous amount of discipline in that the young lords had to memorize the 13-point program. And PE was mandated alone in terms of reading uh, numerous times a week. So there was a moment during the day where all members of the organization were expected to read on their own, but then there were uh, meetings that were had internally to discuss readings, to answer and address particular theoretical problems in revolutionary history. And then there was political education in the community, wherein young lords engaged the community on particular uh, political question. They were um, influenced by Marxist politics and they read Marx and Lenin, um, but they also read the writings of Mao Zedong and Franz Fanon. I'm sure that they probably read Walter Rodney's How Capitalism Underdeveloped Black America. Uh, no, that's Manning's book, How Capitalism Underdeveloped Africa. I'm certain that they, that they read that. So what's fascinating is that when you decide that you are about the revolution and are a revolutionary, there's an urgency to understand society, how it works and what has come before. And so in my interviews, many young lords say that, that they were ravenously trying to find answers to um, the questions presented to revolutionaries by history. How do we do this? Why is a revolutionary organization so central? What is the character of the state? What class are we going to organize? What's interesting is that in this period, the Young Lords and the Black Panthers, who are influenced by the context within which they're reared, decide that they're going to organize not the working class, but the lumpen proletariat. And this is the influence of Maoist politics on U.S. revolutionaries. Maoists were organizing peasants and building guerrilla armies to defeat their colonizers. And so part of what happens here is that the revolutionaries of this period are applying that concept of the peasantry being the revolutionary class to the urban environment. They identify the lumpen proletariat, which is the permanent class of unemployed people who live at the margins of society. That was a term that was coined by Karl Marx, and they identified that as uh, the most revolutionary class in society. And part of what I argue in the book is that the Young Lords and the Black Panthers are emerging in the context of a city that is producing a class of permanently unemployed people. This is the first time this has happened. In fact, the Department of Labor and the Bureau of Labor began to conduct studies of this class that they had never seen before. And 
there was, there's a study that I quote in my, in my book that's in 1965 that says, whoa, in New York City, men between the ages of 16 and 33, disproportionate number of, I think it was 41% of Puerto Rican men and maybe like 35% of black American men were permanently out of the labor force because they had tried but failed to find employment for over a year. And so this class is visible to these revolutionaries. And so the Young Lords and the Black Panthers, they're seeing the urban crisis around them and they're struggling to figure out the praxis, right? There's this dominant theory put forth by Mao and Marx to a lesser extent about struggle. Well, what does that mean in this context that's producing this this class on the margins of society? Maybe we need to organize that class rather than the working class, which is the class that Marx identifies as the most revolutionary class, not because it's morally better, but because objectively it produces the goods in in society. And if it removes its power from um, the factory, it could collectively, it could potentially uh, grind the system to, to a halt. So therein lies its power. So I don't know if I've answered your question, but they were also reading writings coming out of Cuba, the writings of Che Guevara, and were very much influenced by the notion that the revolutionary process was not only about transforming the structures of society, but also about transforming the human being. That we grow up in society that damages our psyche. And part of the revolutionary process is about creating or crafting or giving way to the new man and the new woman. These are the ideas of and writings of uh, Ernesto Che Guevara out of the Cuban Revolution. Yeah, so they were they were Marxists, and they believed in the project of building a revolutionary party in the Leninist tradition. I mean, it's indicative of the time. Most groups of this time were deeply influenced by Mao, Marx, and Lenin, you know, and these guerrilla struggles. What's fascinating to me is that in the history of both the Young Lords and the Black Panther Party, one of the first things that gets sort of left off in the public memory of these two groups is their influence from Mao and the interna- their internationalist politics. I think some people think of the Black Panther Party as solely a free breakfast program party right. that did a few gun-related protests and that was about it. Right. And I think people think of the Young Lords as a party that just did the trash offensive that took over the hospitals and that was the extent of their politic, even though decolonization was at the forefront of, of everything they did. I really want to carry down this theme, but I'm going to move on because of time. So part of what I do in the book, I think in chapter seven, uh, is precisely that. I try to break down and explain the politics that influenced um, the period and their and their activism, the revolutionary politics that informed their reason for being. I mean, they were self-proclaimed revolutionary nationalists. What does that mean? They were socialists, and they were fierce uh, defenders of people who were fighting against colonial rule. And what's fascinating is 
this is something that I didn't really know and hadn't heard of, is that they were attempting to apply the framework of colonial rule to the position of, a, of racially oppressed people in the United States. And so they called the ghetto the colony, jokingly. So they referred to East Harlem as the colony and to Harlem and to poor communities of color across the country. I think that's just fascinating. So there were, they were attempting to understand the economics and politics of racialized oppression and the super exploitation of the people at the bottom of society, disproportionately people of color. Now, I would be regretful if we did this interview and I didn't at least ask you one or two questions related to the repression that they faced. You know, as we know, during this time, there was mass infiltration, violence, repression, extortion, blackmail, and everything above by the state, both at the national level, state level, and local level of these revolutionary groups. And if I'm not mistaken, you actually had to even file a Freedom of Request Act and take the NYPD to court in order to even get their surveillance files on this group. So can you tell me a little bit about the repression they faced and then about the work you did to recover this information? Okay, so um, that's a very long subject, especially the latter part of your question around my suit. But like the Black Panthers, the Young Lords suffered repression from the moment of their inception in Chicago and New York. And in fact, in Chicago, they suffered a lot more repression because they were operating under the rule of Richard Daly, a mayor who was a racist authoritarian figure, transparently who essentially routinely sick the cops uh, on protesters. And the best uh, example of that is the Democratic Convention of 1968. That's a bloodbath, essentially, for protesters, that is. So just to give you a sense of what repression looked like, when the Young Lords decided to rent a storefront in um, the Young Lords in New York, at the end of the garbage offensive, at the end of the summer of 1969, uh, the counterintelligence program of the FBI visited their landlord. <laughs> and we don't know what that conversation was about, but I am sure that their office through the landlord, unbeknownst to the young lords, was miked. There were provocateurs who attempted to join the young lords and create dissension within its ranks. Uh, but this is something that is important to consider. The Young Lords emerged in 1969 at the moment when the Panther 21 were arrested in New York City. So in April of 1969, before the Young Lords emerged in New York, the 21 members of the Black Panthers were accused of being terrorists, of attempting to blow up the police department and the Board of Education office in Queens. Over the course of that trial, which was the longest trial in New York City history up until that moment, it was discovered that, in fact, it was the police and their provocateurs who were attempting to entrap Black Panthers with this 
plan to blow up this, that, and the third. All of that came out in the trial and it was widely publicized. So the young lords come into being at a moment when the cops are on the defensive because they've been exposed. And people around the city and across the country understand that the cops are dirty and that the movements are under attack by the government. So that gives the young lords some room to operate. The Black Panthers in New York and across the country have pretty much been seriously weakened through a homicidal campaign of repression by the FBI. As the organization grows and as it moves to Puerto Rico, it is disconnected from the community and the level of infiltration increases. And in the end, the leader of the organization, when the organization collapsed, had married a cop, essentially, um, an agent of the FBI, of the counterintelligence program of the FBI. And there was an enormous amount of violence. Part of what the FBI did was that it was very good at eroding trust among people who considered themselves brothers, sisters, and comrades. With that erosion of trust comes an enormous amount of bitterness and disillusionment. And that's one of the most brilliant tactics used by COINTELPRO. And they used interpersonal relationships to eat away, to erode at the humanistic fabric of a revolutionary organization. And I think that that thread, right, this sort of exploitation of whatever relationships already existed is common throughout most of the work of COINTELPRO and of the infiltration of these left groups. So I just wanted to note that that isn't even necessarily specific to the Young Lords. Okay, it was right, the same right, thing right. for the Brown Berets, right. for the Black Panthers, for the Native American movement, right? So as wanted to note that that's a very common thread in the work, the repressive work of the state. Oh, absolutely. No, that, that was the strategy. I mean, yeah, I didn't, it happened in the Young Lords, but I, I didn't mean that it was specific to the Young Lords. This was the strategy they used across the board. And it, when you exploit relationships, when you turn friends against each other and lovers, you, you, you're, you're sowing very, very deep, animosity and disillusionment and and distrust. I got easily the COINTELPRO records. So the COINTELPRO records are gotten by filing a Freedom of Information Act request. It's called a FOIA request. And I knew from having gotten the federal papers, the FBI papers, that the cops were hugely involved in infiltrating these groups. And of course, Infiltration is a local affair, and this is something that hasn't really been written about, and hopefully I will write this in my next, about this in the next project, but if infiltration is a local affair, then the police is critical to this. So I filed a freedom of information law request demanding that the police release its surveillance records of the young lords, and I was in a conversation with them for over 10 years, back and forth letters, I 
lost track of where we were because life happens. I'm teaching. I was also involved in longstanding member of the movement of Rimumia. I mean, all kinds of things happen. You can't really keep track for 10 years of this correspondence that's going nowhere. In any case, I decided to go into the office of the police department, uh, the headquarters, one police plaza, which New Yorkers know. That's the headquarters. So I thought, I woke up one day, was pissed off and was like, okay, well, why don't I just walk in there and ask them what the hell is going on and are they going to grant this request or not? So they said that they were aware of my request and they were very respectful and they said that they were on it and that they were in fact just reviewing the file and that they were going to email me or send me another letter and that I was going to be very happy with the result. This was in the fall of 2013. Uh, It was like in October. December rolls around and I don't hear from them. So I literally call, I speak to the same guy and he's like, oh yeah, 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 we're, we're on it. You're going to get it soon. You're going to be happy. In April of 2014, I get a letter from them saying that they were going to dismiss my case on a technicality. So I'm just pissed off at this point. I'm like, how dare you? You led me on. You duped me into believing that you were going to grant my request, but you didn't. So I was just pissed. And I decided to literally borrow money and sue them because I was pissed. No, nothing else. I was just like, how dare you? Immediately, the New York Times contacts me because I'm the first person to file a lawsuit in the aftermath of the Hanshoe ruling. So I'm going to take you back to um, the Panther 21 case. Over the course of that case, it was discovered that the police had attempted to entrap the Black Panther Party. The lawyers who litigated that case at the end of that case then sued the police for a mass violation of First Amendment rights against the Black Panthers and other movement activists. This is important because the freedom movement, the Black freedom movement of the 1960s and the struggles of the Black Panther Party lead to an expansion of litigation around the First Amendment not just around speech, but association. So they sue the NYPD for violation of the association clause of the First Amendment. This case remains in the courts for almost 15 years until 1985. And in 1985, they win, we win, their lawyers who are litigating First Amendment violations. And the judge, Charles Haight, says... If you're a cop and you want to surveil a New Yorker or a group, you have to show cause and you need to get permission from a judge. You can't just do it offhand. These are what are known as the handshoe rules, which are now being used by Muslims whose rights are being violated to defend themselves in the court. So the handshoe case is being litigated again or its its precedents are being used by Muslims to defend their rights. And they probably don't know that this is available to them because of the struggles of the Black Panthers with Mm. the same entities. But what the Hanshu ruling also said, Judge Haidt said, that New Yorkers have a right to know how they have been surveilled and how their rights have been violated. And for that reason, all of these files of surveillance of New Yorkers, over a million records of surveillance record of surveillance files, including those of the police surveillance of Malcolm X, 
they need to be deposited with the municipal archive of the city of New York. And so the Young Lord's papers were part of the Hanshu files. So I was the first person to sue the cops for they, their failure to properly preserve the Hanshu records as ordered by the Hanshu decision in 1985. So they were asked to deposit the papers with the Municipal Archive of the City of New York, but they kept them. Who knows where? I sued them in 2014. This was covered by the news. This was also at around the time that police violence and brutality was being exposed across the country through these videos. So we were in court for two years and the judge was very friendly. The judge demanded that they swear in affidavits that they looked for the records. But then she was like, I want to know where you look. So I want you to take pictures of everywhere you look and then bring it to court. And for two years, we were in this ping pong and they were like, we don't know where they are. They're lost. We've looked hither and yon. They don't exist. We've asked everybody. Everyone has sworn that they don't know where they are. At the end of two years, 2016, this is the year of Eric Garner and Ferguson. At the end of two years, the judge says, I'm sorry. There's nothing we can do. I tried. They say that they don't exist. We exit the courtroom. And my lawyer turns to me and says, sorry, Professor Fernandez. We try. And I'm like, what? We, what? We tried? No, we're going to continue to fight. So he says, let's go to New York One. New York One is like local news around the clock. It's kind of like the CNN of local news in New York. We go to CNN, uh, to, to New York One. They interview me and the lawyer about these files and their significance. And of course, this is a hot story because police brutality is now a subject of conversation. The reporter, previously a reporter in the Bronx that I recognized, is now like the big man at New York One. And he says, okay, well, the police is having a press conference right now. I'm going to go and I'm going to ask them. I leave to uh, the Dominican Republic. I don't know why, but I was going to the Dominican Republic. And when I get to the Dominican Republic, my phone is ringing off the hook. So this man went and cross-examined the commissioner about these records, put the commissioner on the defensive, and the commissioner was like, we're not trying to keep these records from Professor Fernandez. I'll get back to you in two weeks. Kaboom. And they asked me to go to the library to ID the records like a dead body. There were 551 boxes, over a million files of police surveillance of New Yorkers, including uh, those of Malcolm X. So this is huge. But the cops are vindictive bastards. And so they purged the Young Lord's files. It was very obvious that they had purged the Young Lords files and there were more like interesting records of the Black Panthers than of the Young Lords that were supposed to be there, but were not. I still have faith that they will, um, you know, there were some files, but none of the ones that should have been there. But still, this is huge. So these files are now publicly available to New Yorkers at the Municipal Archive of the City of New York. There's another crazy story connected to the files that I have no, that you probably have no time to hear. Well, I already plan on having you back on in the future because we can talk about Bumia and there's also so many threads left unfinished on this young Lord's conversation too, I believe. 
the reason I wanted to make sure to ask you about these files is for those of us whose research involves sort of unearthing this information, this is, cr- this is critical. Because some people don't even know what the process is to initiate Freedom of Information Act you know, requests. I think that is a theme that needs to be explored and written about more. Even in my own work, trying to figure out for a book I'm writing on the assassination of Walter Rodney and the U.S. involvement in that, there's a lot of... important, yeah. It's super important. And there's a lot of documentation that's just redacted, 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 or you know, that they won't give me. So these these conversations remain relevant for anyone interested in the life of a revolutionary or revolutionary organization. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, what is fascinating about COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence program of the FBI, but also the police, is that they were the repository of the literature and the flyers of and the posters of these organizations because they collected everything. You're not only going to see surveillance documents, but also the literature of the organization. These documents are very, very rich and very important. I was able to fill a lot of the gaps in the history with the counterintelligence files, the COINTELPRO files. So that story that I told you about the landlord of the Young Lords having been visited, that was in there, but also a flyer with the demands that the young lords put forth during the garbage offensive that no, I had not, not seen in any, in any library. Mm. They collected it and other, other flyers. I will end. I don't know where we are, but I want to just say that the young lords had a structural critique of capitalism. They put forth a new vision of society in their protest. They were militant they created a crisis in the neighborhood and a spectacle that forced a conversation in public discourse that hadn't previously been there. But they were also hugely creative in their protests. And I think that that's hugely important for us today, especially at a moment when traditional means of protest are not available to us because of the COVID-19 physical distancing demands. And they were evangelical in their determination to fight for the revolutionary transformation of society. You can't get to first base or to second base with one foot on first. You can't really produce change if you are equivocal or half-assed about what you're about. And the Young Lords and the Black Panthers were in it 25 hours a day. That's literally what they said. We are revolutionaries 25 hours a day. And they accomplished much because of it. They are credited for the passage of anti-lead poisoning legislation in New York City. Um, They drafted the first patient bill of rights, but they also shifted the city's perception of Puerto Ricans. Prior to this moment, Puerto Ricans were perceived to be criminals. They were spoken of much like Trump speaks about Mexicans. It's really fascinating that the language, the racialized demonization hasn't really changed much. They were junkies, dependent, welfare frauds, uh, and criminals. That's how they were perceived in the media. 
And when the young lords occupied the hospital, they also occupied a church. They held this press conference on a loop every day when they occupied a church for like 11 days. What emerged was a completely different image of Puerto Ricans that was badass, militant, phenomenally articulate, defiant, and about the real thing of transforming society. So it shifted consciousness in New York on who Puerto Ricans are, but also it educated New Yorkers and the country and the world on the quiet colonial project of the United States on the island. And that's what we need. We need a group of people who are evangelical about exposing the depravity and the lack of morality of the system, which is part of what they did with their muckraking. But they also offered a structural analysis and critique of social problems. You know, I've said this previously, they were like the equivalent of black Twitter in the streets, in the streets where it counts, right? They stopped traffic. They, they stopped the operation of the city objectively speaking, and that kind of militant action in the streets that interrupts the normal functioning of society forces change. They did it with style. They did it uh, with creativity uh, and determination, and they were truly evangelical about their cause. I think that right there is the perfect place to end. I wanted to ask you, before we go there the last word i'm just fascinated to know what is most striking to you about the story of the young lords and this history like what what grabbed you i think what's striking to me so my first sort of um academic research project was on hip-hop and specifically the bronx's burning era of oh new york God. and how that led to the culture of hip-hop, right? So, I mean, for those of you listening who don't know, the numbers of displacement and building vacancy in the South Bronx in the 60s and really early to mid-70s were almost equal to that of post-war Iraq in, in some areas, right? So I learned how that influenced the culture of hip-hop. So for me, what's most intriguing about the Young Lords is how they're dealing with these same factors, right? Of, of neighborhood vacancy, of mass displacement, of movement, of poverty at, at an all-time high at the time with an added layer of this sort of decolonial analysis just by personal experience alone and how that created this revolutionary group. So for me, what's so interesting about the Young Lords is the sort of the beginnings and the context around them I think that in your opening chapters, you do a great job of explaining all that. And there's a lot of information that, as someone who knows the Young Lords a little bit, it was very new information to me and also just very perfectly framed information. So like the story of them, you know, going from a gang in Chicago to this revolutionary organization, to me, that can only happen if you're in the sort of socio-political context that they were in. So that's what, I know that's, Maybe no, not the answer you were looking for. No, I mean, that's one of the things that connects me to the Young Lords, I think, because they they are the children of migration, displacement, 
on numerous levels. Their parents were massively displaced from the island. When they arrived, they were massively displaced from housing. Urban renewal was the equivalent of gentrification in that period. And so there was, you know, a slogan, urban renewal, big removal. And they were also massively displaced economically as a result of the industrialization. So a part of what I argue is that massive displacement and a double and triple incidence of displacement is hugely influencing the consciousness and politics and the organizing agenda of urban radicals of color during this period, because this is what they're living with. You can't really get away from, from the impact of massive displacement on your everyday life. But also what's operating in this period is white reaction, white reaction to their gains and the foothold that they're, they're trying to establish in the city, um, in the schools. Most people associate the desegregation of schools with Southern states, but there was a, a project to desegregate the schools here in New York that failed terribly. And there was white reaction to that. So discovering that for me was just so revelatory. And they went through this as children. Part of what I argue is that they experienced this terror in the streets at the hands of the police, in the schools during this desegregation uh, struggle, in the hospital when they served as translators for their parents. So as children, they developed an instinctive critique of the system uh, that was organic and when they came of age politically in the context of these decolonization movements and the movements of the 1960s, that anger against injustice that they felt as children in the schools, in the streets, in the hospitals, when they translated for their parents, became a very powerful revolutionary analysis uh, and a determination to, in many ways, avenge the injustices of their childhood. Yeah, so the environment that you were talking about that, that made the young lords was very, very important. One last thing I want to say. So part of what I argue in the book is that it took a gang to say, yeah, we're going to throw down with the most demeaned, the most persecuted people in the Black Freedom Movement, the Black Panther Party. Because of middle-class res respectability among migrants and because of anti-Black racism within the Puerto Rican community, that was very hard for students in New York City to do. That was a very hard conclusion for radicalized students, former college students who left college to join the movement to do. They were looking for a revolutionary agenda, an organizing agenda, but it never occurred to them to make common cause with the Black Panther Party. But when they saw it happening in Chicago, it captured their imagination and they dared to go that route. I do not think that they would have done it alone. Again, it took the people at the bottom of society, a gang of Puerto Rican and Mexican youth to say, yeah, we're going to throw down, we're going to make common cause with the most demeaned people in this society who were the Black Panthers. Feared, you know, identified as public enemy number one and the major national security threat by J. Edgar Hoover.
1968. So that's really important. You should also know finally that the young lords were disproportionately darker skinned Puerto Ricans who raised the issue of anti-black racism in Puerto Rico and Latin America and theorized the origins of racism in Latin America under Spanish colonial rule, as opposed to how it emerged here under uh, British colonial rule. So there's an enormous amount of other dimensions to this history that we haven't had time to discuss. And there was a fierce struggle internally in the organization to fight internalized racism. As, as well as sexism, too. I know that the gender question was, was huge for the party. Right. And that's what I was going to say next. And then there was a fierce, fierce struggle um, against sexism in the ranks of the organization and to elect the first woman to uh, the formal leadership body of the, of the Young Lords. Anyway, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for, for pulling me back into this conversation. It definitely has been a pleasure. And as soon as, you know, we're able to move freely again outside of this COVID fiasco, I hope we can meet in person and discuss this more and, and find ways to collaborate because it sounds like there's a lot of overlap in the work that we do. And uh, I'll put the links to purchase your book in the description of this, of this episode as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for this conversation. Juan, Miguel, Milagros, Olga, Manuel, all died yesterday, today, and will die again tomorrow. Hating, fighting, and stealing broken windows from each other. Practicing a religion without a roof. The Old Testament, the New Testament, according to the Gospel of the Internal Revenue, the judge and jury, an executioner, protector, an eternal bill collector, second-hand ish for sale, learn how to say, como esta usted, and you will make a fortune. They are dead, they are dead, and will not return from the dead until they stop neglecting the art of their dialogue for broken English lessons to impress the Mr. Ghostings who keep them employed as lavaplatos, porters, messenger boys, factory workers, maids, stock clerks, shipping clerk, assistant, mailroom assistant, assistant, assistant to the assistant, 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 lavaplatos, and automatic artificial smile and dormant for the lowest wage of the ages and rages when you demand a raise because it's against the company policies to promote speaks, speaks, speaks. Wang Dai hated Miguel because Miguel's used car was in better running condition than his used car. <laughs> Miguel Dai hated Milagros because Milagros had a color television set and he could not afford one yet. Milagros died hating Olga because Olga made $5 more on the same job. Olga died hating Manuel because Manuel had hit the numbers more times than she had hit the numbers. Manuel died hating all of them. Juan, Miguel, Milagros, and Olga because they all spoke broken English more fluently than he did. And now, they are together in the main lobby of the void, addicted to silence, off limits to the wind, confined to word supremacy in Long Island Cemetery. This is the groovy hereafter, the Protestant collection box was talking so loud and proud about. Here lies Juan, here lies Miguel, here lies Milagros, here lies Olga, 
Dear life, Manuel, who died yesterday, today, and will die again tomorrow. Always broke, always owing, never knowing that they are beautiful people, never knowing the geography of their complexion. Puerto Rico is a beautiful place. Puerto Ricanos are a beautiful race. If only they turn off the television and tune into their own imaginations. If only they had used the white supremacy Bibles for toilet paper purpose and make their Latino souls the only religion of their race. If only they had returned to the definition of the sun after the first mental snowstorm on the summer of their senses. If only they had kept their eyes open at the funeral of their fellow employees who came to this country to make a fortune and were buried without underwears. Juan, Miguel, Milagros, Olga, Manuel will right now be doing their own thing where beautiful people sing and dance and work together where the wind is a stranger to miserable weather conditions where you do not need a dictionary to communicate with your people. Aquí se habla español all the time. Aquí you salute your flag first. Aquí there are no doubt sub-commercials. Aquí everybody smells good. Aquí TV dinners do not have a future. Aquí the men and women admire, desire, and never get tired of each other. Aquí que pasa power is what's happening. Aquí to be called a grito means to be called love.